Hi, I'm John Popola, and you're listening to the Emergent Order Podcast. It was about five years ago that David Thoreau first reached out to us, and my wife Lisa came up with an idea. It became LoveGov. And basically the idea was, if the government was a boyfriend, what kind of boyfriend would it be? <laughs> and out of that came a project that really sort of brought together the best of what we do at Emerging Order, of really bringing these geeky ideas to life with humor and heart. David Thoreau has since become one of my favorite people because he's such a deep scholar. I and mean, we're talking back to the origins of natural law. And so I'm excited to share this dip into the history of thought with my good friend, David Thoreau. So, David, you're one of my favorite people for a lot of reasons. Well, thank you. But one of them is um, we have worked together on several projects, and those projects are really my f one of my favorite projects of all time. So just to give a little backstory, a few years back, um, David had reached out and uh, from the Independent Institute and wanted to do a, a, a video series about you know free market ideas um, aimed at a younger audience. And my wife, Lisa came up and wife and business partner, I should say, Lisa came up with a really great idea, which was what if we thought about our relationship with government, the way you think about a, a romantic relationship that goes wrong. <laughs> you, know, you start off and everything's great. And over time you realize this person's a little more controlling than I thought they were. And even though when they, they tell you how much they care about you, they really seem to be care more about controlling what you do. And then things really get creepy and they start spying on you and it just really all takes a turn for the worse. And it was, uh, the concept was really sort of, I think in some ways beyond the um, initial conception of the scope. But uh, David uh, is a rare uh, philosopher and, and uh, think tank president in that he was excited at the opportunity to do something really kind of wild and wacky and creative. And thus, LoveGov was born. So, David, tell me a little bit about why you are so concerned about, you know, talking to a younger generation about these ideas. And just tell me, like, you know, share with folks, like... You know, where are you coming from? Like, what what motivated what motivates what the Independent Institute does? Well, first, let me just say that I thought Lisa's idea was brilliant, <laughs> and uh, um, as you know, we wanted to target millennials um, based on various surveys of the opinions of millennials, and her idea of of you know millennials, uh, of course, are the dating age and the age in which relationships are created. And so basing LoveGov around a boy meets girl love story we thought was brilliant and of course gave the creative genius of Emergent Order all sorts of fun things to deal with. So we're thrilled and very grateful for your, all the work that you put into it and, and it continues to expand. So it shows the insights that Lisa had I think really were, were great. So um, what motivates me is um, a couple things. One is years ago when I was in my uh, early 20s, I stumbled across some work by Hayek and I started reading other works by him and uh, other sort of associated uh, with um, him like Ludwig von Mises and others. And 
that led me to Richard Weaver and all sorts of other people. And it, it was to me so startlingly true that there was a perspective on understanding reality and society that would greatly benefit people, but it was virtually unknown. Yeah. And we lived in this, in this bubble, this um, zeitgeist of, based on the progressive tradition, and people would just assume it's true, and they would operate within that in that paradigm. Getting back to Thomas Kuhn's view about paradigms, I decided that I would do what I could to try to make this information more readily available. But I never considered go, going into this as a profession. Uh, my field at the time was engineering and mathematics, and um, but one thing led to another, and I um, ended up switching careers. So the thing that I am intrigued with is not just this sort of information or narrative gap in the culture, but also that the opportunities continue to expand to do this kind of communication. And uh, when we created Independent Institute was after my having the privilege of working elsewhere with different groups and getting to know, oh, various scholars and policy experts and what have you. And it enabled us to put together a, an approach that we thought was fairly straightforward, but somewhat unique as far as creating a so-called think tank, but not a think tank that was simply going to turn out more tomes. We can easily do that, and we do do that. But we also wanted to use whatever technologies and innovation uh, was available to communicate the ideas to different kinds of people, where they are, addressing the questions that they have in a way that would make sense and would resonate. Um, so when I first saw your work, John, uh, in the Hyatt Keynes rap video, of course, a lot of people were just blown away by it. But I thought that what you said at that happy meeting when we met um, was was just very relevant, and I would really uh, commend you for, you know, leaving um, the conventional um, multimedia field um, and going off and venturing on your own, because it just showed a great entrepreneurial sense and mission and dedication. So it's been a real pleasure. Well, I appreciate it. I um, I wanna uh. For those who might be listening to this who didn't who don't know who Hayek is, because um, he is our shared our shared spirit um, philosopher, if you will. Uh, who who is Hayek? It's Friedrich Hayek, um, economist and philosopher. Kind of lay out for me from your perspective, like who this who this person is and why his ideas are impactful. Like they've changed two careers on this conversation, yours and mine. And so, um, you know, and obviously Emergent Order, the name of our company, is drawn directly from Hayek and his work. So, so to, you know, explain, explain, you know, how do you understand Hayek? So he was a, an economist and political theorist, primarily. He was from Austria. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize, I believe it was in 72. Is that right? I think it's 74, maybe. 74. It could be 74. Yeah. So he was um, uh, the leader of the so-called Austrian school of economics, most prominent. Others were von Mises, 
uh, Joseph Schumpeter and their other economists in this tradition. And the views basically of the Austrians was that individuals assess the world they live in and they make purposeful choices to overcome problems and to improve their lives and the well-being of others that they care about. And out of that, you, un you come to understand that people have minds and they have free will and the uh, choices that people make um, are based on the information that's particular to those circumstances of all these many individuals and that no individual has all the information or anything, even something close to a tiny portion of it. So Hayek's work is also based on a certain sense of humility that we, even if we wanted to, we could not be God. We could not control people's lives and really improve their lives. The opposite would happen. And so um, his early work uh, with Mises was a critique of socialism showing how it could not rationally calculate because of this lack of information and that because we live in time the circumstances change and what information people have changes and we adjust um, as individuals based on those changes. So Hayek is probably best known for his book The Road to Serfdom which he wrote uh, essentially in the last days and aftermath of World War II. And the theme of that book was and is the Allies had defeated the fascists, but the Allies had inadvertently, in many respects, adopted the very, the very economic central planning ideas of the fascists and, uh, and socialists. The book is actually dedicated to the socialists of all parties, and the book came out. It was a, it was, uh, incredibly incredible rude awakening to the int intelligentsia of the time, who all believed in in central planning. So, um, in Hayek's career, he wrote many books on this kind of theme, and he looked into as it applies not just economics but law, um, psychology. Uh, in many other areas. I mean, you can, t instead of a postmodern sense, you could say what Hayek was saying that we really can't know much. And uh, the postmodern view is that you can't know truth or reality. Um, and there are many people who, who uh, conclude that. It's a very a ancient view called nihilism. Um, but what Hayek was really saying is that is the truth. The truism is that decentralized decision-making is the basis for a not just a free society, but a humane and prosperous society. In some respects, you said you were coming out of the engineering domain, which is kind of the, the worst place to be if you, if you, when, you, when you encounter Hayek in some sense, right? Because you're, um, you're in a realm of, of planning and design and construction Right. And, uh, you know, I feel like engineers, I mean, I think Bill Gates being perhaps the most notable one, have a kind of solutionism where they think, well, I can just engineer a solution to any problem, including large scale sociological complex challenges. Like, why would you as an engineer, what about you as a person 
drew you to Hayek, do you think, given that you have an engineering background? I think that you're right. There are many people in engineering who do believe that you can finesse some sort of uh, model, computer model or whatever, to essentially plan things. And, you know, we see that with the attempt to model climate, uh, what are there, 30 or 40 climate models, none of which do a very good job. If not, they do a poor job in predicting the future. I think the difference is that the idea that Hayek was talking about is that there are uh, laws in reality that exist that uh, we're subject to, essentially. This is a, Hayek is not a natural law proponent, but I would use it to explain a natural law view, is that there are these law, laws of physics and ethics and so on and so forth, and uh, we're subject to them, and our learning about them is beneficial for us to be more successful. And that uh, if you believe you can make up your own rules in physics, say, I'm sorry, you're going to have a problem. And so, again, getting back to this idea of humility is that you're discovering sort of the reality of the universe, realities of the universe that are there, and we have minds to be able to uh, infer and to uh, discover them, is not the same as to say that um, I can impose my rules on people regardless. So that was the way I approached it. In other words, the, I'd say that the person who believes, say, in socialism or statism of, of any kind believes that um, with the proper controls on society, you can create this new world or solve this big issue and impose the rules on people. Uh, the alternative view is to say that individuals on their own and in cooperation with others set their own rules um, in concert with this greater truth and greater reality of natural law. So that's, a, that's, that's the way I would approach it. Now you've, um, you've written a lot. You've, you've, uh, you know, you're, you're a publisher in, as independent Institute. Did you get and end up getting any formal economics or philosophy training or did, was this something that, you know, you, you came to sort of later in life and, and, um, you know, as an educated, as an engineer and as an educated person, but not somebody who had sought out to uh, be a philosopher. Uh, you know, how, how did you, you know, and how do you think about that? How do you think about that sort of personal evolution? The story in my case is that I had been brought up to believe that uh, free markets and limited government and so forth was a noble thing and worth learning about um, and knew you know, a certain amount about it, but certainly had no great expertise in it. So what happened specifically was um, I discovered uh, when I was in engineering school um, and even before um, groups like the Foundation for Economic Education. So I would order basically all their books and read them on my own. And when I first stumbled across Hayek, his work led me to many other writers, as I said. And so um, I was sort of tutored in that way. And uh, so then later, um, when I was in graduate school, I took quite a bit of economics and many other things. 
um, when I later went to the University of Chicago, and even the, and this was when I was majoring and doing graduate work in engineering, and then when I went later to the University of Chicago, um, I was actually majoring in, I was in the in the business school in the PhD program, in economics in the in the business school, and uh, so I in the course of getting to know people at the Foundation for Economic Education and then consequently people at the Institute for Humane Studies and the Intercollegiate Studies Institute and a number of other places, I had the privilege of getting to know various scholars who um, were very kind in directing me to read different things. And uh, um, when I was at various universities, I organized uh, conferences and many other kinds of projects some of which were in concert with some of these faculty members. So I was sort of mentored in that way. And I suspect that because my original training was in economics and mathematics, I was not um, sort of seduced by the conventional views, which I had already earlier realized were out of sync with what people like Hayek were talking about and how Hayek was, had already critiqued and refuted them. So that was a great advantage for me. From your experience, why, why do you feel like this sort of uh, classical liberal worldview feels like it's always kind of on the on the outside? Yes. You know, it's always sort of, you know, I don't think Hayek wrote this piece. Uh, why I'm not a conservative. I think it's a portion of one of his books. I'm trying to. Uh, yeah, it's from the Constitution of Liberty. Right. So it's, I've read it as the excerpt. I, I've, I haven't read the Constitution of Liberty, but you know, he he says, you know, well, I'm not a conservative essentially because I don't believe in just preserving the status quo. I, you know, in some ways he's a radical. He's a radical and like liberal liberalism, classical liberalism is a kind of radical philosophy, but it's always been one that's felt on the margin. Like, why do you, why do you think that is? Uh, you know, how do you grapple with that? I mean, that's kind of at the heart of our co collaborations is trying to make these ideas accessible to, to a broader audience. No, I, yeah, I think that's right. Incidentally, the first thing I ever read by Hayek was that essay. Oh, how about that? Back when I was in the Air Force um, in, in Louisiana, um, I was... Uh, going through the base library looking for some some books to read and I stumbled across this book called what is conservatism that ISI published and uh, uh, one of the essays in it was why I'm not a conservative and my mother was a sort of a Goldwater conservative and I'd read uh, Goldwater's book when he ran for president it's the conscious of a conservative was Goldwater's book which was actually um, ghostwritten by Carl Hess oh. I was intrigued by this this essay, especially in a book, What is Conservatism? So it was that essay that I read and I thought was quite insightful. And that sort of fit what I, for what I was looking for, because I'd already had this. This is during the anti-war period with the Vietnam War and campus riots and whatever. And so, um, you know, I was concerned about civil liberties and... Um, the war in Vietnam, and so on and so forth. And so here was a person who was raising questions of enduring principle, you might say, um, and that he's basically you know, implying there are things that are wrong and we need to be thinking about how to improve things, but we should do it based on this tradition of values of, of the individual being not 
Hayek wouldn't say sacred or whatever, but essentially the idea of individual liberty and free choice and so forth, that led me on. Um, I do think that classical liberalism in the modern age has had a harder time because some of your listeners may know about the so-called Enlightenment. Uh, the Enlightenment was a period roughly uh, 17th and 18th centuries in which different intellectuals in the West decided that reason was the focus of mankind's ability to advance themselves and that before this period, uh, mankind lived in a dark ages of superstition and so on. Actually, um, most good historians know that that narrative is not true because actually, uh, for example, Rodney Stark um, and other scholars have shown that the Middle Ages was actually quite a vibrant period of innovation and entrepreneurship and, and so on, uh, and, sci and science. But in any event, the Enlightenment occurred and a lot of intellectuals decided that the, the previous natural law tradition, which is what animated America's founders and Adam Smith and others, was a superstition. And there was no God, there's no objective truth. It's, it's all sort of situational and we have to sort of improvise. And so out of that came um, a more dominant view, which is instead of saying there's sort of a natural law, or legal code to right and wrong, and there are, there are principles of economics and ethics that at best we can come up with is sort of a utilitarian approach, which is what works. So the natural law tradition of classical liberalism split in some respects into two rivers. One was continuing that natural law tradition, which included Aquinas and Locke and Montesquieu and many others. And then another river that went off in a utilitarian direction of Bentham and John Stuart Mill and his father and others. And that led to, um, in some respects, progressivism. Um, and so the argument that classical liberals from a utilitarian standpoint ended up making was simply a cost-benefit analysis of um, how, do you get, how do you make cheaper bathtubs, essentially? Or how do you get um, more people uh, with shoes on their feet? But humankind is not driven by simply utilitarian concerns. Humankind is driven by the heart and connection. And so I think that a major reason why classical liberalism hasn't connected as it could is because it, it to, to a large extent, abandoned this previous natural law tradition, which was a far stronger, I think, tradition. And only since World War II, actually, has the natural law uh, classical liberal position reemerged. Big tangents is, is the business we're in on this podcast. That may be more than uh, <laughs> you. I, I do think that there are a lot of uh, really smart people um, who we have the, the privilege of working with who understand this and are trying to correct it. And I think what, what you're doing in Immersion Order is a, is a huge contribution to getting people to understand these enduring ideas. Uh, help me understand, like, you know, and, pe and listeners understand what you mean when you say the natural law. Because I think one of the things I was ex really excited to talk to you about is this intersection that we've talked about between these philosophical ideas and faith and um, 
you know, a lot of uh, probably half of the f- classical liberals and libertarians I know are, you know, don't subscribe to any kind of religion. Um, you are not among those. You do, and um, that's something we share. And uh, there's interesting intersections there. And I think natural law maybe is one of those intersections. I'm I'm not sure it re- requires a belief in a creator, but like, talk me through like what what is natural law and how does it why do you find it to be so foundational to this um this sort of conversation about philosophy and how like you know how it's progressed? Well, there are two um, traditions that flow into the natural law tradition itself. One is the Greco-Roman tradition, uh, going back to Athens and, and some other places in Greece and then in Rome. Um, in Rome, it was the major, well, there's a whole number of them, but the, the most well-known natural law theorists were people like Seneca and, uh, and their others. And um, the other tradition was the Judeo-Christian tradition. So, and there's an overlap between the two. And the, the basic v- idea of natural law is that there is an objective reality of laws that determine existence and we, our lives and our minds only can exist because of that. And this reality is of factors, laws, say the laws of physics, are fixed. They don't change. Uh, in the modern sense, the speed of light doesn't change. The gravitational constant doesn't change. But what keeps it, right? And where did it come from? So the view basically is that there is a natural order of a mind that created this because um, the view is that we we reflect this greater mind, you might say. And the reason why we can discern these laws is because we're not just matter in motion. We actually have an ability to infer and to learn of this larger order. There's a, a more modern book uh, by the writer C.S. Lewis called The Abolition of Man. It's a short book. It's basically his book on the natural law. And the first chapter of the book is called Men Without Chests. And um, in, the, in the ancient Greek view, um, the human person was consisted of three things. One was the, the head, the second is the heart, the third is the stomach. And so the stomach is instinct, the head is reason, and the heart is conscience. So the three pieces of the person are inseparable, but if you emphasize one over the other, you've got problems. The book is basically a critique of sort of subjectivism, you might say, in epistemology, or knowledge, aesthetics, and ethics. And Lewis very shrewdly shows that you can't even if you deny the existence of the natural law, which many people do, especially since the Enlightenment, anything that you propose of choices to do things is rooted in that natural law. You can never step out of it. And so he very shrewdly shows and sort of examines many different perspectives in this regard. So traditions, the Greco-Roman and the Judeo-Christian tradition came together at, at, a, at a high point with Aquinas. And uh, so Aquinas, uh, Lord Acton called Aquinas the first Whig or first classical liberal. And um, so Aquinas was interested in natural rights and natural law. 
uh, he believed that if he believed that the civil law should reflect the natural law, you can't kill, you can't steal, and so forth. And if the magistrate or the ruler in the civil authority continues to abuse um, that person's power uh, and transgresses this natural law standard, which we are all mind, sort of minded, uh, mindful of, um, the people have, right, has a, have a right to rise up and overthrow that, that magistrate and even kill him. Um, but only if, it, if it's persistent. And so that view is, you know, it's a straight shot from that to the Declaration of Independence. So the, the view basically is the West arose because of this, this uh, sort of what became a Judeo-Christian integration of the ideas in that Mediterranean area. And out of that was the discovery of um, individual liberty, the, the rule of law, the scientific enterprise, uh, and many other things. Uh, the creation of, the, of universities, the movement to abolish slavery came out of it. Um, so it's, there's a great book uh, by Roddy Stark, who I mentioned, called The Victory of Reason, which traces this through. Uh, Stark has many other great books, but that would be one I would recommend to people. But people like Bastiat and many others are all inspired by this, and the views of, of the Hayek and the Austrian school come out of this tradition which goes back to the Middle Ages in these early universities created by, by these people. So my entry point into this world of ideas was, in a sense, not Hayek first. It was actually Rothbard, because I, I was struck in 2007 by what Ron Paul was talking about. You know, he was such a like a black sheep in, in, in the run-up to the financial crisis. And when, when everything, the way he was describing the world seemed to really line up with what the world was doing, that got me interested. And I... I and so I read, I think I read Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, but then I went on like a Rothbard kick who is a stridently natural law theorist, right? I mean, he was pretty rooted fundamentally in this, in a sense that there are these basic principles on which the rest of, um, you know, sort of modern thought or f the philosophy of society, you know, you can build from. And then I found Hayek later and Hayek... I think I think I'm more I think I, I straddle temperamentally between the fire belly of Rothbard at at some moments and the conciliatory openness of Hayek on another. So it's interesting that this fundamental principle can be a dividing line between two thinkers who are on on the same page about a lot. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, I I mean I think that one of the reasons why Hayek was also appealing to me was because his his way of framing issues was in keeping with, you know, I was basically raised in a Judeo-Christian natural law worldview. Uh, even I didn't never called it that. That was, you know, the moral standards and so forth that I was taught. And Hayek seemed to fit in that. Even though Hayek himself became an agnostic, um, and this whole story about that. But what's more interesting, I think, is this is the story of of what happened with Rothbard because. Uh, Rothbard, uh, his father was a conservative, moderate Republican, and but most of his relatives were communists. Right. So he went in the tradition of his father, and he came across Mises and others, and ended up going to uh, Mises seminar at, at New York University, and um, became a devotee of Mises' work. But Mises himself, who was also an agnostic, 
was a utilitarian. And so Rothbard was utilitarian. And Rothbard being sort of a polymath, and, high, and Mises too, for that, I many they all were, but I think Rothbard even more so, that he was looking for answers to some of these issues that uh, Mises and Hayek were not giving. Now, I'll give you an example of one just in a second, but what happened was that he decided that utilitarianism was not a firm footing for the ideas of liberty, which it, which it is not. I mean, if, if the end justifies the means as your moral code, look out. Right. So he, and he knew about the history of the ideas, the classical liberal ideas, and so he knew that it was, it was originally and for many hundreds of years grounded in this natural law perspective. So he became very interested in it, and, but what even pushed him further was uh, he was writing a book on pre-classical liberal e economists and economics, um, meaning pre-Adam Smith, pre-David Ricardo, and so on. And what he discovered was this literature on uh, economics going back to the Middle Ages into the ancient world. But especially in the Middle Ages, what he discovered was Aquinas and some others dis uh, essentially created this field called scholasticism. And the, the scholastics wanted to understand how we should live, all right? Uh, the biblical tradition of the, the, the Ten Commandments and, and the teachings of Jesus and so on and so forth. How are we supposed to interpret that to live? There are many questions that come up, and many of them relate to the connections between individuals in having conflicts. So the result of that was that the creation of these universities in the Middle Ages, like the Sorbonne and uh, Bologna, Cambridge, Oxford, uh, Salamanca and others, these were Christian clerics with the professors and they had these students and they were studying, trying to understand issues. And what they found was, and Aquinas before them um, had already grappled with this a great deal. Aquinas actually wrote quite a bit about economics. So what they basically discovered was the ethical principles of the Judeo-Christian tradition were one side of a coin and the other side of the coin was economic principles. So if you can't steal, for example, that means that someone has a right to be safe and able to peacefully use some asset that person has. They can transform it, they can give it away, they can sell it, they can plant it or whatever. Um, and out of that comes the idea of property and exchange. And so, especially at the University of Salamanca, uh, in the latter part of the scholastic period, they were uh, debating over numerous generations things like usury and just price and many other contentions. And they essentially discovered virtually all the modern uh, laws of economics, theory of, of uh, marginal utility, subjective value, theory of money, competition, monopoly, etc. Wow, I didn't I didn't know about this. Uh, I've heard about this scholastic tradition, but I didn't realize how rich it was. Yeah, it was very rich. Uh, Schumpeter wrote about it, and there are others. And Hayek knew about it. And um, the story of the Austrian school uh, itself, which is kind of interesting, is that uh, around 1870 in Vienna, there was a young man named Karl Menger who wanted to become an economist, essentially. And the leading philosopher uh, in Austria was at the University of Vienna, whose name was Franz Brentano. And Brentano, you know, he would be lecturing and so forth. Incidentally, Freud, 
studied under Brentano but left. And many people believe that if he'd stayed with Brentano, Freud would have never gone off into, into all the kooky things he went off into. Anyway, Menger was taking classes, essentially going to lectures by Brentano, and discovered that Brentano was an expert on the scholastics and knew all this about the history of scholastic insights and economics. Huh. So he then took that and wrote his book, Economic Principles, based on the scholastics of hundreds of years earlier through Brentano. Now, Brentano, incidentally, was a Catholic priest, too. So in the Middle Ages, Salamanca and these other schools, they like Aquinas would teach at the Sorbonne, and then he would go some other place. And, and they had this connection with scholars and, and uh, sharing information and so forth. So this, this information spread from Salamanca to France and to Austria. And so what happened in the case of Karl Menger is he brought it into the modern world. The interesting little further story about Rothbard is that when he was, when he was writing and, and researching this, he was very pleasantly excited about the fact that the ideas of the Austrian school were rooted hundreds of years earlier and that they were rooted in this natural law tradition. And so towards the end of Rothbard's life, some friends of mine have told me that, who knew him quite well, that he believed that a free society could not be possible unless a critical mass of the public became neo-Thomists. In other words, they subscribed to this natural law tradition. Anyway, the interesting little story about Mises that's related to this is that uh, Mises' greatest work was his book Human Action, uh, which is not an easy read, by the way. But no, none of the Austrians are all that easy to read. <laughs> in fact, we did a book called Choice by the economist Robert Murphy to present a more up-to-date and readable version of Human Action. In fact, Rothbard was once commissioned to write that too which is what came, resulted in his book, Man, Economy, and State. Anyway, in Mises' case, in the first part of Human Action, Mises is talking about sort of certain axioms of human action, human behavior, that people have um, the ability to choose and, and examine the world they live in, as I was saying before, and they make choices uh, to improve the situation. And he, was, he says basically that uh, and naturalistically, we don't really understand how this is possible, that people would have individual agency to make choices. They're not, in other words, he's saying that it seems kind of, if you believe that only the world of nature exists and the laws of physics determine everything that exists, then there is no individual agency because everything is determined by the laws of physics. So he says, we don't really understand how individuals are able to do this. Maybe someday we will, <laughs> but for my book, this is, uh, this is paraphrasing, obviously, um, I'm going to assume methodological individualism, meaning he's going to assume that it's true, and he's going to skip over how he can prove it, but he's going to base his uh, book on the fact that people, individuals do act, and they act purposefully, and then the rest of the book is just a spin-off of that. And essentially what Mises was doing was conceding the point about natural, the natural legal thinkers. And part of the natural legal tradition, fundamentally, is, and this relates to writers like C.S. Lewis and others, John Finnis at Notre Dame, and, you know, there are many others, is that there is sort of a dual, dual reality. There's a reality of uh, matter and energy and the laws of physics, and there's also a reality of ideas and the mind. The multiplication tables 
exist, but is that is that a subjective projection of, uh, of our thinking, or do they really exist objectively? Does the gravitational inverse equation, does that is that a true thing, or is it just some sort of an approximation of our subjective projection? So the dualist tradition is one that the natural law tradition was very strong on, and it's the belief that Yes, we are acting agents, we have purpose, we have free will, we have minds. We're not just matter in motion. And hence, if we make choices that are contrary to the natural law, we should be held accountable. And the whole Western tradition of law is based on that. This is exactly why I was excited to talk to you, Dave, because I, know that, I knew that we would go... We could go really deep cut philosophy and I could learn so much. So this is all just a selfish act on my part, this entire conversation. <laughs> um, um, we, uh, I've been reading this book, um, Socialism After Hayek by Ted Burtzak. Okay. Because um, I'm trying to get an appreciation for what's the vanguard of um, sort of a anti-liberal think- thinkers today. Not, you know, and by anti-liberal, I mean... Um, uh, sort of socialists, social democrats, um, people who people who generally call themselves socialists, since that's something that's obviously on the rise. The book is interesting because he actually has a real deep appreciation for Hayek and for the Austrian school and for this knowledge problem that you talked about earlier. Just the the fact that you know the old Soviet socialism of central planning just can't work because. I mean, heck, uh, corporate HR departments struggle to have the knowledge to do their jobs, let alone a, a similar group of people to your average company HR uh, HR department, only now they're running the entire society. Like, it just doesn't scale. It doesn't work. The knowledge isn't, can't be pulled together, and there's no computer that can make it happen. So he kind of gets that and, and accepts it. And I'm not all the way through the book yet, because I'm reading it very carefully, but one of the things he latches on to is what he calls Hayek's postmodernism. And this concept of modernism and postmodernism is something that I'm very behind the ball on. And it, it, it kind of was first brought to my attention being curious about Jordan Peterson, because he talks about and he, t- he talks about it in sort of a glib, a little bit of a glib way. He says like, oh, the postmodern neo-Marxist, or he's got a phrase that he uses. But I do think he's read the literature, and there seems to be this interesting dividing line that you're getting at too, which is this like this utilitarian sort of there is no truth in a moral sense except what turns out the best for the most people, and then this postmodern view, which is I'm not even sure I'm capable of giving of of summarizing it accurately, but I think it's something to the effect of that because of our subjective minds. There is only our own subjective interpretations of reality. It's yet another way of saying there's no truth, but it's even less tethered to outcomes than like a utilitarian view is. Is this postmodern and versus modern versus pre-modern philosophical battleground, if you will, sort of part of this conversation? Yeah, I, I think it is. Um, just to sort of define the terms, um, I would suggest that... Uh, a so-called now when you say modern it basically means post-enlightenment in other words post 16th century intellectual view 
and the modern view is that God doesn't exist, there's no objective truth or goodness, and we have to sort of get on and make sense of things. But, you know, even if you, even if, if the, if the modern uses a utilitarian argument, one version is the end justifies the means, another is the most good for the most people. You, what is good? I mean, in other words, this goes back to what Lewis was critiquing in his book, The Abolition of Man. Whatever you try to use as a standard, you're going to end up embracing the natural law view. You can't escape it. And so the pre-modern view was that there was this dual reality and that there were standards that were objectively true and that it's not something that we can repeal or make up. And if we do, that was considered to be sinful. In other words, you're assuming that you're God and you're going to make up your own rules. The modern view was all that superstition, there's no God, there's no objectivity, as I said, everything is subjective. But, you know, the, the easy critique of that is that the person who says that everything is subjective is, make, is making a claim of truth, right? They're claiming that that's an objective truth. Or if you say that everything is relative, well, the statement all things are relative is a claim to objectivity. So you can never, it's really sort of an, it's an incoherent view. Now, the postmoderns, in many respects, what they said was, if you assume modernism is true, that it's just energy, matter, and the laws of physics, and we're all determined, we're robots, whose um, actions are determined by the environment, or genes, or the proletariat, <laughs> or the race, or what, you know, whatever theory you want to you know, throw in there, then there's no science. Science has no meaning, because the scientists' views are determined, and there is no, the judge who rules on some dispute, his views are determined, the person who committed the crime, that person's determined, and the idea of a crime itself. Is, so the whole thing ends up being of no meaning, okay? But the postmodern is stuck with the same problem that the modern is, because as soon as you start making any of these pronouncements, you're, you're making claims to objectivity. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing that this whole sort of zeitgeist perspective is incoherent. And there's a, a philosopher um, who's now emeritus from Notre Dame by the name of Elvin Plantinga, who has looked at a lot of this and has basically restored in very sophisticated ways that free will is tautologically true and we have minds and there's objective truth, God exists, and anyway, it goes on and on. And so he, he's, his work has been a huge challenge to this conventional paradigm. So if you take someone like Hayek, Hayek was raised, um, I believe he was raised Catholic, and uh, he abandoned all that. There are different reasons. But anyway, became an agnostic. And so in his work, there is a certain component that you can't know. But so Hayek, in, to me, is he's, he's grounded in this Austrian tradition that goes back to the Middle Ages, which is the Strong's point. But if he emphasizes the, the radical subjectivism, he gets into trouble. And he never really took that direction. He just sort of tinkers in it, you might say. And those people who view him as a postmodern are emphasizing this other tendency. And I think that is a disservice to him, but it also shows that his own work is, it's not sufficiently grounded. And this is one of the things that, that people like Rothbard saw. And I think that that is true. And that's, 
And I don't think it's any accident that the ideas of liberty and science and all the rest of it came out of this natural law tradition. Nowhere else in the world did it, did it develop. There's a logic to this utilitarian argument. Utilitarianism being the sense of, um, you know, the most, let's just take the version of the most good for the most number of people. At the edge of it, trying to boil that down to a sense of like, well, what is the common version of good? Well, there's a, there must be some sort of irreducible utility particle, like a util. And how could we, so we've got to maximize utils. You have to like maximize utility. Right. It all holds up in a kind of daily practical way where in the sense of each of us, as we live our lives, make these choices pragmatically about like what we think is the best thing based on the information we have around us. And, you know, you make those hard calls you're kind of trying to approximately be utilitarian in your daily life. You're trying to do the best you can. But when you try to elevate that to a, like some sort of high philosophy, you kind of run into like, well, okay, there's no such thing as a util. And there's no way to measure this fake particle of utils. And so if your whole philosophy as a, as a philosophy, as a way of understanding the world is we need to maximize utility only FYI, you can't measure it. So you can't know if you're maximizing it or not. Seems like a kind of pretty quick fatal flaw from as a philo- as a philosophical concept. Yeah. Like what is this? What is the yardstick? Well, I think that the, you know, we do, we do function, um, but it's implicit in our daily lives in looking to the future and planning and making choices that the that the world is orderly but if the laws of physics were were up for grabs it was random or any piece of it or that the ethical norms were were random you know nothing nothing could be done nothing no life could exist and no choices could exist so you know sort of like the the name of the, of the firm emergent order emergent order coming out of, you know, a Hackean view of spontaneous order and so on, can only exist if there are rules that exist that make choices and rational choices possible. Yeah, you have to have some concept of what the word order even means in order for you to judge that, that, that there is an order at all. Right. So, I mean, you know, you have that video of the birds in, you know, flight, right? But the reality is the birds are subject to these rules, they couldn't exist without the rules, and the rules are fixed, right? And so, in other words, the the nature of aerodynamics and and turbulence and the construction of the feathers and the heart beating of each bird and the communication between the birds—all these things had to have to exist objectively for that to to happen. And so that's part of the amazing thing that Mises could not explain in the first part of he couldn't explain. In naturalistic, you can explain it. So you know, if, let's say that you assume that naturalism is this is a basic, one of Plantinga's arguments. Plantinga has an argument called the evolutionary argument against naturalism. The argument, in, in many respects, boils down to the point that if you if if you accept that only nature exists and we're ruled solely by the laws of physics. Every event that's ever happened, every thought we ever have, is determined um, by the laws of physics. There's no free will. There's no free choice. But then what's this theory of naturalism? Did you choose naturalism? How do you know it's true then? So you end up with a completely incoherent, self-refuting view. So on the one hand, you're, you're making a claim, right, 
but you're also saying you can't make a claim. Right. So in, in almost a tautological sense that these factors are true. Um, one thing about precision, there's a, a term called the fine-tuning of the universe, which is something that um, many uh, scholars in, diff in different fields of science, astrophysics and, and biology and whatever, just started discovering maybe 30 or 40 years ago, was that it, it's, really, it's really pretty amazing that all these uh, cosmological constants in the universe are very precise. Um, like the gravitational constant in the inverse square equation of gravity. If you change that constant by just the tiniest amount, the whole universe can exist. And it's true, and they've made these lists, and lists keep on increasing of all these different factors, that if anything were changed, either the universe couldn't exist, or life couldn't exist, and so on. So those are fixed. But what keeps them fixed? Is it a law? Well, then what keeps that law fixed? So this goes back to this natural law view that there is this order and we're subject to it. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And being able to understand it is a wondrous gift, really. I mean, to be able to, you know, we make mistakes all the time. But I think that the very fact that we can move humankind out of the jungle and have prosperous lives and longer lives and all these other th things that exist we take for granted today is really an astounding thing. I wanted to connect this to something that is both looking ahead and looking back to our efforts together with our LoveGov project. And that is, and you and I have talked about this you know, separately uh, from this conversation, you know, we have this rise now, and, I th and it's actually even more pronounced among the generation that follows the millennials. It's called iGen or Generation Z, the generation of my 14-year-old son, Matteo. And it's this, it's this, this notion of um, identity politics, and, and, and in, the, in, the, in the sense of we each have our own truth. It's like you even hear that, like, speak your truth, that your own experience is truth that if you have if you feel a certain way that's the truth your feelings are the truth it's it, it, because they're there you have them you're feeling them therefore they're your they're your truth and it's given rise to this um it feels like the extreme end game of this big philo philosophical conversation we're having and it manifests itself in in things like they really kind of undermine what seems to have always been like the basis of humanity from my perspective, like the idea that I can empathize with someone who is different from me. Everyone's different from me at some level. So my understanding of anyone other than myself relies on there not being 7 billion truths. And yet that's what we're faced with. If I'm a man, I can't talk about issues that aren't about men if I'm um, if I'm a particular race, I can't understand people from other races and vice versa. And certainly if I if I'm privileged enough to be a white male, then my privilege makes me even uniquely less qualified to empathize with others than if I'm in a group that's not that's historically marginalized. And, it, it, you know, how do you contend with this? Do you see how do you see this in this sort of philosophical battle of ideas that we've been talking about? Because it feels like it's really kind of the end game of this um, postmodern sort of rationalistic pursuit. 
Well, I think what we need is a post-postmodernism, essentially what we need, which, was, which would be really, uh, in some respects, a pre-modernism. But, yeah, I, th I think you're, you, you've hit it on the, on the head that this is, you know, a, a logical step out of the, this view that is popular um, it comes out of this postmodern view. And this, by the way, um, Jordan Peterson's book is an attack on this. His book, 12 Years for Life, is an attack on postmodernism. And his subtitle is An Anecdote to Chaos. He's saying that if you buy into this view, the only conclusion that you have is nihilism. And the modern world in the 20th century ended up with people who did not believe their objective standards. And, and instead of religion, or Christianity in, in particular, but theism at a, at a minimum, that people were seeking for truth and meaning and modern ideologies were used in its place. One of the reasons why Peterson emphasizes the work of Dostoevsky and Solzhenitsyn is because he's saying that there's a transcendent reality to our existence, and we simply need to recognize that and not, be, not buy into the, sort of this false narrative that postmodernism has. And as I was saying before, in Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, he critiques this and basically shows that, that it's folly. You know, if the postmodern says that there are uh, multiple truths, the very statement that there are multiple truths is a statement there's one truth. So which is it? So it, it's this incoherent view. And so it's sort of, people have to sort of get shook out of this uh, folly to believe in this. And so that, I think that's one of the reasons why Peterson's book has been, you know, he sold over three million copies. And he's arguably the most influential public intellectual in, in the world now. And it's because he stepped into a situation of this confusion. And the people who are most enthusiastic are that generation. So I think it's, it's an interesting dynamic that we're seeing. And hopefully it will continue to overcome these fallacies. I want to dig into faith because I think one of the things that, you know, we've touched on over the course of this conversation so far is the creator and in a sense that the transition to the enlightenment was a, a rejection of theology and of, and of, a, of belief in God and a sort of replacement of God with some concept of pure reason and the sense that, well, 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 you know, we now have, we now have the scientific method and everything will eventually be figured out and God doesn't exist, like, uh, you know, God is dead, like Nietzsche said. And so I guess, like, does this tradition that, you, that you've advocated for in this conversation, does it rely on believing in God? And specifically, does it rely on believing in the Judeo-Christian God? Because obviously there's a lot of people, there's obviously billions of people who are not of the Judeo-Christian or Jewish or Christian tradition. So it kind of sucks if we leave them out. And then, like, and there's a lot of people who don't believe in God. And I think uh, if liberty relies on a belief in God, I think that that may pose just as equal a challenge for uh, a philosophy of liberty as as any other we've brought up. No, I, th I think that that's true. And it's I, I hate to keep on going back to Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, but um, in the back of the book, he has an appendix in which he goes through, he's gone through all these ancient documents from civilizations all over the world, you know, ancient Babylon and Egypt and China and you, know, you name it. And he said, you know, it, it's, it's, it's instructive to see the commonality of the views 
of the people who lived in all these different societies, many of which never had any contact with each other in, in any sort of um, sense of humankind. And um, as far as uh, ideas, and so there, he points out that there is this remarkable consistency uh, that murder is wrong, stealing is wrong, mercy is good, the golden rule, and so on and so forth. Now, he's not saying that the rulers did not abuse it. They did. But the folk realized it, and they lived by it. And if they didn't, this, that civilization couldn't exist. If, you know, if, if you're worried that your neighbor's going to slit your throat in the middle of the night, you're not going to be able to live next to the person or trade with the person or hire the person or whatever. And so all these relationships are based on trust. And so Lewis and Tolkien, too, were big advocates of the view that these principles are universal. And uh, they also believed that the history of the great epic stories, the great myths and legends of every culture are depicting these enduring truths. Um, and part of that depiction is that in virtually every culture, there are major stories about the harvest failing or a blight occur hits the, the town or the community or the nation and someone sacrifices themselves and dies and then comes back and the the people are saved it's true in norse mythology with baldar and egyptian mythology mythology with osiris and so on and so forth their view basically was that these were stories not that they were historically true but the themes were true that these were in keeping with the christian story even if no no one had ever heard of the story of christ and in the story, the way Tolkien and Lewis viewed it was that the Christian story was a similar story, but it actually happened. That was their view. And it only had to happen once. So um, whether someone is Hindu or, I mean, let's take Buddha, for example. Buddha, as a young man, um, realized that his father was terrorizing and living off the people in the town in their palace. And he was a brutal dictator ruthless. And he was so upset, he abdicated from the lineage, left the palace, went out into the wilderness to try and find uh, truth. He was out, I think it was for a couple of years or whatever, and he comes back and he devotes himself to um, being against the people being enslaved and so forth. What he really was discovering was this natural law view. I mean, he saw that there, these were wrong things that his father was doing and, the, and the, the monarchy was doing to these people. His solution was that you needed to uh, humble yourself. He did not believe in God in that sense, but he believed that uh, selfishness was the cause of the problem. But anyway, I'm, I'm trying to say that in all these different stories, um, there's a certain commonality. Uh, in fact, Lewis's was, a, was a, a militant atheist I became an atheist in his youth and only became a Christian later through um, his friendship with Tolkien. And they had long debates and discussions. And uh, it was talking about these very questions that persuaded Lewis um, in the process. I think the basis of a free society has to be the recognition that there is an objective standard that 
exists and our knowledge of where that comes from may differ and be either imprecise or even wrong. But to be functioning, I think you have to have that standard in place. The other thinker, sort of modern thinker that comes to mind that's an interesting challenge to uh, this worldview, Matt Ridley in his book, um, The Evolution of Everything. Right, right. So Matt is a, is a naturalist. If I'm going to try to summarize. It's been a little bit since I've read it, but... um. You know, Matt basically argues that everything we have is the product of an evolutionary process, that there are no skyhooks, there's no God, there's no designer. Mm -hmm. um, he uses the term skyhook. I forget what the reference is, but it's like that there's like a invisible hook in the sky that you can hang whatever the, you're sort of the God of the gaps, that we don't know, we don't know where this come, came from, therefore God, it's like a hook in the sky, you can hang your, the answer you haven't been able to find on. And... He draws on a lot of the different thinkers. He even points to Adam Smith and Smith's sort of moral theory of, um, which is very evolutionary in a sense. So, you know, Adam Smith's ideas and the theory of moral sentiments that we come to have a kind of moral sense out of a desire to be social and to be respected, to be loved and to be lovely is the way he puts it. And so we kind of act as if we're being observed um, by a kind of um, uh, an impartial spectator because we want to be seen as someone who's going to be likable and we want other people's affection and we want to deserve it. And out of that comes the moral norms that, you know, the, you don't need the Ten Commandments. You just need to want to survive. And like social evolution will give rise to all these norms. How do you think about that? argument and how does it fit into this big natural law pre-modern post-modern debate well i think um the first problem i mean there's a lot of good work in that book and a number of matt's other books the claim that of the, the book's title everything evolves essentially on its face is, is wrong do the laws of physics evolve they don't evolve they're fixed so the universe itself is going through changes, but all those changes depend on the fixed reality of the weak molecular force and the strong molecular force and gravity and electromagnetism. Matt skips over all that. So again, the point is that there is this fixed situation of these laws that do not evolve. Does the speed of light evolve? It does not, right? Interesting. What the, what the scholastics and others were saying in this natural law tradition was that we can discover these principles in reality that are fixed and it's not a delusion and it's not a skyhook right the sky itself exists only because of a reality of these laws that's the first point the second point is matt needs to read planiga because he'll find that planiga will totally destroy his naturalistic view <laughs> and that if you assume naturalism you end up with a view that is incoherent one of the people who was a big influence on matt which is richard dawkins so Dawkins writes a book called The God Delusion. All right? Now Dawkins doesn't believe in free will, and neither does Matt, because they're, they're naturalists. No thoroughgoing naturalist can believe in free will. You may think you have free will, but you really don't, is the view. Okay? So Dawkins writes this book, and he doesn't believe in free will. He, wants to, he writes this book because he wants to persuade other people who are not atheists to become atheists. But of course... Dawkins' views 
he believes are determined. The other person who's, say, a Christian, their views are determined. What he writes in his book is determined. So the whole thing is incoherent. So where exactly does agency fit in here? So how do you persuade someone if the person doesn't have free will? In fact, science itself is based on the idea of having free will. The way Lewis put it was that where science exists depends on the existence of scientists whose own views are not determined by the system they analyze. But if everything is just naturalistic, we're in this interconnected machine. The universe is an interconnected machine. We're just part of this machine. There's no independence. There's no independent agency. The scientist can never reflect on which theory is true because the scientist's own views are determined. What, what Matt is doing, what Matt is, Matt is, to his credit, is drawing on this classical liberal tradition, including the scientific enterprise. But that whole tradition is grounded in this dualist view that we've been talking about. One of the things that's so fun uh, talking to you about this, um, David, is that you're, you really you, you really thought through these things. <laughs> and it's, I'm playing a devil's advocate as a discovery process of my of my own as as somebody who's you know brought you know really kind of on the same page with you. So you know you brought up something that triggered another thought in my, for me, which is also one where my knowledge base is very thin. So a buddy of mine, Will Hurley, has a new company uh, called Strangeworks, and he's working on quantum computing. Okay. And this world of quantum um, phenomena, quantum mechanics, Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Right. You know, so you, so you ne- like you brought up this notion of well, how can you have science if the if the scientist as an observer can't sort of independently come to conclusions? That if the, this determinism seems like it falls apart. You know, have you grappled with some of this more the the like substrate of the universe that's in this quantum realm? Where how do you think about that? Of course, yeah, I think that's very important. I mean, Heisenberg, Heisenberg himself was a theist. All right, so Heisenberg is not saying that his uncertainty principle is subjective. He's saying this is true. That's the point. Right now, maybe the Schrodinger equation, which you know is maybe the most empirically verified equation in mathematics, and it may well be that there are many different interpretations to quantum theory. But there, the fact that quantum theory is a robust theory is not subjective. Uh, you know, this is where the engineering background is going to help, because <laughs> I. I can sort of describe it the way someone might read phonetically another language and not understand the words they're 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 mouthing out. We we may not know where uh, you know in an atom that has an electron field around it, we can't tell where any of those electrons are or even really what an electron is. Quite frankly, right? You know, it it isn't as if unlike the uh, the Greeks who believed that the world was made up of these tiny little um, particles. The particle itself is made up of, of other things which are in a probability field, right? You know, the tabletop that we can knock our, our, our hand on is um, based on the probability of the subatomic world. But it is based on it. So maybe the whole universe is based on these relationships, these concepts, these, these, these laws, these ideas, and that what we see in the, in, in the 
the world that we are, you know, beyond the subatomic world, is this practical universe that we can function in, which is operationally not Newtonian on the subatomic world um, scale, right? But that doesn't mean it's not true. It's maybe maybe this world in this sort of Newtonian space that we operate in, maybe it depends upon this other reality, which is based on ideas. I mean, I'm not saying that's the answer, but I'm simply saying that to say that, yes, you can send a photon through a slit, you don't know exactly where it's going to go, fine. But that's, that's, that is the point. It is, it, it's hard because I think one of the things that this sort of um, intellectual divide sets up is a lot of opportunities to talk past each other in these kind of debates. And I find that that's especially... I agree. That's right. Um, yep. Today, to come back to this issue of the sort of um, like this uh, tribal identity politics where I don't need to listen to your view because yep. it's just invalid from the outset. Um, sets up a, a, you know, sort of a troubling sort of like end, like the worst kind of end of history in the sense that just it ends the possibility of learning or progress. Yeah, and, that, and that's one of the reasons why we did the LoveGov project. I mean, it's not dealing with, you know, complex philosophical questions, but it is dealing with major concerns that young people have, and they've been taught a certain view and the popular culture, in many respects, supports that. So how do you connect with people on issues that they are concerned about, they have to grapple with? Where do they go? What genre of communicating can we come up with to bridge with those people? And you know, I, th I think it's, it, it's been a great experience to see what is possible by ref respecting other people and coming up with ways to bridge it. You know, the, the humor, of course, is important, but it's also, I think, it's the sense of respect. I mean, literally in the LoveGov project, we've got it portraying millennials figuring out problems they face. And we, the project, uh, your listeners may not know, we, the project is designed to target millennials. So you have millennials watching millennials figure out the problems that the millennials watching have. And so you're bridging with people, but the lessons are not trivial at all. It's not just, you know, a sitcom. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why it's worked so well, because it, it is, it does connect and it's something that does resonate with people. That's what we try to do at Independent. And I know that's what you're committed to at Emergent Order. So that's why I'm so thrilled to work with you. What's next for you, you and your work? What are you excited about now? What um, what's coming up in the in the next year and and beyond? Well, of course, we're we have a second season to LoveGov, and we're pushing that as far as we can, as well as the first season. I think the total viewership for LoveGov is something around uh, 14.5 million views. About 98% are millennials. So, could we go to 20 million, 30, 40? 83 American millennials, and I think something like 50 or 60, 40 to 60, something like they go to YouTube almost every day. So it's an opportunity. Uh, I think there are many, aren't many times in history when the bulk of a generation goes primarily to one place to get news and entertainment. So that may not be true in five years or three years, whatever. But I think it is an opportunity. 
And since the millennials are asking good questions um, and are disillusioned with Washington, you know, that gives us an opportunity. Um, so we're very interested in, in pushing that and looking at other ways to develop ways to connect with people in, in that kind of a very large, it's, it's a large scale reach, but it also, we have this website called Catalyst that the uh, viewers are, are channeled to, and we want to develop relationships with those people and not just continue the discussion, but give a, an opportunity for people to dig deeper. But uh, anyway, other areas, you know, we have a book coming out uh, May 1st called Restoring the Promise. It's on higher education by Richard Vetter, which is a, a devastating, really most authoritative book ever done. Um, Rich is, is, you know, the leading expert on this, on the, the relationship of cost and quality and political correctness and student loans and, you know, all this kind of stuff with public policy, government involvement in higher education, as well as these cultural things. Um, we have another book coming also, also on May 1st called War and the Rogue Presidency, which is a critical look at essentially the modern presidency, which is nothing close to what the founders imagined and how that includes um, unlimited wars and spending and corruption and all sorts of things. And then we have a whole series of other other projects um, on almost every issue. So it's healthcare, and we have another book that is coming out on the entitlement state. So it's basically a book on how to change the incentives in the entitlement state, which would be, include Medicare, food, you know, food stamps, Social Security, Medicaid, everything. You change the incentives and people own their own accounts and you essentially give them an incentive to opt out of the government and you essentially implode the whole system into a civil society. Um, so we're always, looking for, we're always trying to look for ways to uh, innovate and sort of change the conversation, hopefully in a more meaningful way. And we're just, you know, we're just very privileged to work with a lot of really smart people. And I know that in a merchant orders case, you know, you've been expanding in all sorts of directions because people have increasingly recognized the, the unique value of what you do and how that can connect with people in ways that, you know, we never thought was possible before. I think one of the things that when people come across these classical liberal ideas that is often hard to get their heads around is how orthogonal they are to like our politics. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at the just the set of issues and books you just described and the work that gets published on your website and through your publications, they don't none of that fits. It doesn't fit neatly into like Democrat Republican. Right. It's like a, it ends up being a kind of Rorschach test for people uh, if they depending on where they come in. I mean, if you care about if you care about immigration or, or criminal justice or the warfare state, it's like, well, we're pretty lefty. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. and um, and then if you're talking about certain types of, you know, certain ways of thinking about the economy, it seems pretty conservative, at least in, you know, sort of woefully inadequate binary that, that most people are subjected to when they look at political reporting. I mean, how do you, in like your own personal encounters with folks, 
navigate that when somebody you know you meet somebody at a at a dinner party and they ask you about something and, and you know the conversation starts to turn towards politics and you know how do you avoid or how do you confront that like well the the expectations trap of our of our like polarized time you know we're we're in some respects in the communications business and so we i think need to be mindful of you know where someone is coming from you know not suspect that they are lying to you or being deceptive or something but they're sincere all right and they may have views that are wrong or well thought out and i try to find ways that we can bridge with people and i think that also i mean one of the natural law views is that the natural law is fixed and if you don't subscribe to it so to speak you'll pay the price if you have a price control, I'm sorry, it's going to cause certain problems and whatever it might be. And so the opportunity, I think, has been increasing because partly because of uh, more communications. One of our friends is a uh, emeritus professor from Boston University by the name of Angelo Cotavia. And Angelo wrote a very long article about eight years ago, I think it was in the American Spectator, on the American political culture. And he divided the American political system into two groups. One is the so-called political class, which he described as about 30% of the population, and the other being the country class, which is the rest of the, of the country. And the political class believes in the progressive narrative. And they believe that they're anointed to run the rest of the country, and that the country class are the people to be lorded over. And the political class lives off the country class in many, many important respects. But over time, the, narr the progressive narrative has become thinner and thinner, and people don't buy it as much. There are things that they see that don't live up to the promises and the expectations, or maybe it's, it's you know, they see the corruption or lying or whatever it might be. And so he traces this, and, he, you know, one example is that since Watergate, uh, no one can be elected president who's viewed as part of the elite. So Carter, Reagan, Bush Sr. was an exception, but he was tied to Reagan. And Clinton, Bush Jr., Obama, and of course Trump, they're all viewed as outsiders, whether, whether that's true or not. But the point is that he's saying that increasingly the, the country class has been cluing in to this disparity and is rebelling. And it's also part of the reality of third-party candidates and, you know, Bernie Sayre, uh, Sanders or Trump or whatever. So, um, you know, Ron Paul's campaign. So it's an interesting way to see, and, you know, you can have sort of a natural law perspective on this, that people are sort of, who are busy and are not schooled necessarily in Hayek or whatever, but they are sort of cluing into this. And so they're looking for other answers and whatever other narratives they pick up on is up to us or and other people who are providing the narrative now you know alexandra cortez ortega cortez has her narrative right and there are others and if it's more it's sort of if it's sort of repackaged the same thing of, of some elite's going to run my life it's not it's not going to probably have the traction so i think that's sort of good news and it's, again, it's an opportunity for us 
to foster, you know, going back to Hayek's essay, Socialism of the Intellectuals, about creating a movement of classical liberal intellectuals who will displace the uh, views of central planners and um, tyrants, basically, um, with a vision that is more humane, is more truthful, is more beneficial to people. One of the things that um, I was struck by, a friend of mine brought this to my attention somewhat recently, that there, it's, it's not what we know, it's what we know that isn't so, that's so dangerous, right? Is the, mm -hmm. I don't yeah. know who said that first, but it's a... It's great and it's pithy, <laughs> yeah. but you know, I'm going around to these film festivals right now with our film, The Pursuit with Arthur Brooks, and people will ask, mm -hmm. usually the first question in the Q&A is, well, well what, what do you hope people will get out of the film? And the movie talks about the rise of the, the global poor in the aftermath of the sort of expansion of free markets following the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and that we've basically been living through the greatest eradication of human poverty in the history of the species just in the past 40 years. And so my answer is always, first, well, there's a lot of debate, a lot of it strongly held and strident about where we need to head as a society. And it seems to me like a good place to start is at least being in a basic agreement about what the facts are. And I know facts are a funny thing in a complex society, but there are certain things that are indisputably true and yet generally not widely held. And one of them is that everything has gotten so much dramatically better for the overwhelming majority of, of people on this planet over the past 40 years. And there's been all these books about it. I mean, Matt Ridley, like who we've talked about already, has made a major contribution with the rational optimist. You've got Steven Pinker with an, uh, Enlightenment Now and um, Hans Rosling and factual, factually or factfulness. If you go into a mixed group of people and you say, over the past, since 1970, has poverty gotten better or worse around the world? 70% on average will raise their hand and say it's gotten worse. And they're simply wrong. It's such a hard thing. We have so, there's such a basic fact of the matter challenge to overcome in trying to have civil discourse and trying to like advance ideas that matter. Well, I think, I think as we were talking about before is again, this is, we did a book called um, China's great migration, which is the story of the Chinese people finally being able to move within China under Mao. They could not, they just live where they were born. And so when that, policy was removed, that restriction was removed, 260 million people got up and moved. And out of that, and the government could not control this. And there was a change of the, of the regime's leadership and so forth. They became more pragmatic. But the point was that 260 million dirt poor people who were essentially starving uplifted a billion people out of poverty in 20 years, right? And so I think one of the great things about Arthur is that he's bringing to the conversation the core point of empathy. People are not motivated fundamentally by whether you get a new car or not. Those are how tasty the bananas are and, and all these other factors which are all part of good. But if you don't have the empathy, which goes back to this pre-modern view, then people are still searching for meaning and connection and relationships 
And so that goes back to the role that religion, and in particular, I think the Judeo-Christian tradition brings to the conversation, even among people who may not have ever heard that particular story. Those basic lessons, I think, are universal. And so I, we do think that it is a necessary condition for a free society to endure and to grow and to become possible is that these standards have to be part of the common culture. And if, if, they, if they're eroded away, that you end up with a situational ethics which leads into all sorts of bizarre stuff, including the tyranny of the 20th century. What one thing makes you the most optimistic for where we're headed at two levels? One, globally, and two, sort of in America as a, as a society. Well, I think, you know, your point about the uplifting of billions of people out of abject poverty in the last 20 and more years is a very encouraging thing. And that, that means that those people, uh, I mean, for example, in China, which I was discussing, despite the views of the regime, you know, Christianity is, is spreading all over the place. And they're cracking down on these house churches and so on. And if you look at the so-called global south, meaning Africa, South America, Asia, and so forth, um, the fastest growing religion is Christianity. But even if, even, if it's, even if it's Islam, Islam is a mixture of a number of different views, but part of that is this natural law tradition too. And I think that that tends to be a ground. So I, I, I'm optimistic because I think the natural law always wins out ultimately um, because it is the standard. But I think that with communications and, you know, when Hayek wrote his, wrote his book, The Road to Serfdom, there's only, I mean, and he had the first meeting of the Mount Pelerin Society, it was only like 25 or 30 people, intellectuals in the whole world. And so that's not, that's not the case today. And so I think that all the different institutions that exist today, all the different publications, the innovations and uh, ideas that we're seeing uh, that are being pushed, you know, whether it's John Mackey or Arthur Brooks or other people that you've worked with, I think that's a very encouraging sign. It's not to say that, you know, it's inevitable that we're going to uh, win out over folly, but I think it is a good sign that things are on the uptick. And we just, I th think, just to be conscious of that and to try to use that uh, as best we can is, you know, I think a great opportunity. David, thank you so much for taking the time with me today to have this conversation. I learned a lot, and uh, hopefully our listeners um, had their notepad ready because there was a lot of, there's a lot of good books that uh, are on the reading list after this conversation. Well, thank you, John. It's a real privilege to be included on your podcast, and I'm sure it's going to grow and be very successful, and it's a real, a real compliment to be on the show. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Emergent Order podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. If you're interested in being a guest, shoot us an email at podcast at emergentorder.com. Our producer is Jesse Bennett. Thanks again, and speak to you next time.